Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be spending our time in the first uh, half of that chapter, the first um, 11 verses. So 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. I used to work for a man that was pretty wealthy. And he, uh, he set out to build a home in a very small and very exclusive neighborhood. I mean, it was a pretty big swath of land, but my memory was that there was only about six or seven houses in this, in this neighborhood. And because it was an exclusive neighborhood, it had a number of restrictions. You could only build this kind of a home and this tall of a home and of, of these kinds of materials and things like this because these other wealthy people that lived in this very small neighborhood didn't want anything to happen that was going to affect the value of their home, you see. Um, it had to be built, as I remember, with red brick, and it had to be in a certain stately kind of a style. But that's not at all what my boss set out to build. My boss set out to build a three-story Cape Cod house um, that didn't have one brick on it. It looked nothing like all of the rest of these homes. And, you know, he, he was sort of asking for a fight, you might say. And that's exactly what he got. He got a fight. He got, um, he got sued by all of the other people that lived in this little neighborhood. And, uh, but my, my old boss didn't, didn't care much. You see, he had a lot of money, and he himself was a trial lawyer. And so he knew how to drag things out, and after months turned into years, his adversaries tired of the fight. And the house had already been standing this three-story abomination in the eyes of his neighbors had already been standing for about a year at this point. And so they agreed to drop the suit in exchange for my boss adding a red-bricked chimney on the side of the house, which he happily did. Boy, did my boss brag about beating those fellas. He just went on and on about how he had beat those old money power brokers of years gone by. He had broken into the big boy club in his mind and beaten them at their game. He had won. And with the endorsement of the local courthouse, nobody could say otherwise. Think for a moment about how the relationships were among him and his neighbors thereafter. That couldn't have been a fun place to live. I mean, think, think about in terms of like your best sort of thinking, your best memories of what a neighborhood is. Like, I, I remember growing up. I mean, we knew everybody. Every house across the street, diagonally behind us on either side. And when there were parties, everybody was invited. And I'm sure that's not how things went down after my boss moved into that neighborhood. Can you imagine how those who had lived there and enjoyed their home for years up to that point now felt? 
For others who knew of the discord and infighting in that neighborhood, do you think they saw it as a place they wanted to move into? No, they surely saw it as a a community that had been spoiled, a place that was full of rancor and joylessness. How much more damage can come to the reputation of Christ's church if the members cannot work out their differences and rather take each other to law court to bloody one another in the public eye? Not a very fun place to worship. Certainly not a place that those outside of these walls that knows about that kind of behavior, they certainly wouldn't be trying to break in, would they? And so we have this instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn your attention there now and let's read the Word of God together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'll read and you follow along with me. The first 11 verses. Be careful now, don't slip into this, this rut of thinking that this is a lecture or that you're here just to pick up some interesting factoids from years gone by in the church. This is God's eternal word. He spoke to the original audience as he speaks to us today. As has already been said many times through prayers and, and proclamations here this morning, he desires to change his people through this word. So pay careful attention. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be... There is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. It's an interesting topic, isn't it? I've re- I, I remarked to Courtney yesterday and to a couple of you this morning, I'm amazed at the breadth of topics that the word of God covers. And so we find ourselves at this place dealing with lawsuits that were happening within the church. I've called this um, sermon Shameful Suits. 
And uh, I think you've already probably picked up why just from the reading of the text. Well, against a cultural backdrop of countless lawsuits in that day and in that part of the world, where people demanded one's rights at the expense of others, Paul holds forth this rule of love, this, this theme of our text, which is this. Disputes in the church get handled in the church. That's the theme of this text. It's the, it's the rule of love, if you will, that Paul holds forth to the Corinthians and to us. Disputes in the church get handled in the church. Now, we don't know what disputes Paul was referring to in this text. We're not sure what gave rise to him dealing with this topic. No details are recorded for us. There, there's, no, uh, there, there's no reference to a particular lawsuit between this person and that person. What Paul is concerned about here is how the disputes were handled, not the nature of the disputes themselves. So it's not unlike chapter 5, right? We, we, when we were in chapter 5, there Paul was, was, was not dealing with the sin of incest per se. That was the occasion for him writing chapter 5, but rather he was dealing with how the church should handle sins like that when they arise. Disputes will arise in the church, of course. I mean, this is a group of sinners. We know this full well. We're going to bang into each other. We're going to have disagreements. I mean, it happens in marriages, it happens in, in friendships, it happens in, in, in the workplace, and it certainly happens in, in Christ's church. But we have to try to resolve them as spiritual people. Remember, the, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is the call to be spiritual. It's, to point, it's Paul pointing out these different aspects of the Christian life and saying, you need to handle this like spiritual people, like people that, that are indwelt with Christ's Spirit. We have to act like people who are trying to glorify Christ together by acting like Him and being a witness of Him to the world around us in every regard, including the resolution of disputes among us. The Corinthians were not acting like Christians in how they were doing this. They were not acting like spiritual people in how they were handling disputes in the church. And so Paul here gives a very stern corrective in this text, he provides two rebukes. Now, he doesn't just rebuke for rebuke's sake. He doesn't just hit him upside the head so that he can go tell people how hard he swung. He offers these two rebukes in the hopes that his friends would abandon their shameful suits out there in the law courts and rather handle matters within the church as they ought. And so let's handle these two rebukes one at a time. And I know that maybe is sort of a heavy feel, right? To say, like, buckle up, we're going to handle a couple of rebukes today. Are you ready? Is that what you're hoping for today in church? But I think that you will find within them encouragement and hope. Okay, so the first rebuke against the Corinthians was for turning to the world's courts. Now, the two, they're very related, these two rebukes. The first one's going to be just that. He rebukes the Corinthians for turning to the world's courts. And then later, the second half of the text is, is going to be a rebuke for them taking up the world's tactics. Okay, so you can see how those go hand in hand. But first, the first rebuke was for turning to the world's courts. Look at verse 1 again. 
When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That's what had been happening in Corinth. Members of the, of the church there were hauling one another before secular judges to resolve disputes that they had among each other. Now, just for clarification's sake here, uh, these were not criminal matters. These were civil matters. You know the difference between criminal and civil, right? Civil is a disagreement we have of, in some, some way where we need to resolve our differences. Criminal matters are when the state takes up to, you know, you know, to punish somebody for their wrongdoing. We're not talking about criminal matters here. This is talking about uh, lawsuits between believers in the civil court. They might have been business partnerships that, that soured. Perhaps that's a reason that one of these lawsuits had been taken up. It could have been a disagreement over compensating someone for an accident that resulted in an injury. It might have been about a boundary dispute or a contract that wasn't fulfilled or someone's reputation being damaged by a slanderous remark or a host of other things. We're not provided with any clarity on what kind of cases were being brought to court, only that they were of a civil nature rather than a criminal one, and they were relatively small at that. Again, Paul wasn't addressing disputes in the church per se, but rather how they were being handled. Paul lays down this fundamental principle for God's people. Disputes in the church get handled in the church, but evidently not in Corinth. Church members there were seeking the judicial system. They were going to local magistrates to handle them, and Paul was outraged. Do you see, do you see that in verse 1? In the, in the Christian Standard Bible, it reads like this, How dare you take your disagreements to the court? How dare you? Do you feel just that Outrage. In fact, in the Greek, the word dare is the, is, is the first word in the sentence for emphasis. Dare you do this? You can get the tone right away. And then later in verse 5, he says it very directly, I say this to your shame. You see it there in verse 5? And so the apostle rebukes the Corinthians for going outside the church to resolve disputes that were happening within it. Look at verse 1 again. Now, just feel the the weight of of the opening of this text. When one of you has a grievance against another, you have a dispute. There's something between you. There's a disagreement of some kind. You have some case that needs to be decided between the two of you. When one of you has that, do you dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? It's unthinkable. In order for his friends to to get to the same place that he was, in order for his friends to see how shameful their actions were, Paul asks them a number of rhetorical questions. As you read this text, maybe you started to hear them. It's question after question after question. Rhetorical questions are ones, of course, that, that demand a certain answer, Right? And, uh, and that's the, the rhetorical device that he uses here. And uh, that's what Paul's trying to get done with these questions, to try to, to share his outrage so that his friends in Corinth would see their actions are not the way spiritual people, people that claim to be Christ's, are to behave. 
Here's the first one, the first question. It's wrapped up in that opening rebuke. We've, we've read this verse 1 now a couple of times. But look at this one little phrase. Does he dare go to law before the what? Unrighteous. Do you see that? Paul pushes them to consider what kind of judge they should seek to settle disputes among God's holy people. The, the rest of the, the, that verse 1 says, instead of the, what? Saints. Which is literally the holy people. You, you dare to go off to the unrighteous to settle matters instead of God's holy people? And so you can start to, to feel the heat of this rebuke, I hope. Saints means holy people, as I said. People set apart for God's holy purposes. Certainly deciding disputes among the saints are in those purposes. Make no mistake, the court system in any culture, at any time period, in this world is cursed by sin and it's run by unrighteous men and women. You have to feel the weight of that, friends. Despite the fact that justice might be uh, part of a court's mission or, or creed, every worldly court is working toward an imperfect brand of justice at best. And often working toward a downright perverted justice. Something not even worthy of being called justice. I need not, I need not list court decisions of recent years to make the point. Those unbelievers who rise to the bench, who, who don the black robes and rule over the affairs of those within their jurisdiction, you would think that they were wise enough, discerning enough to mete out righteous judgments. But friends, apart from God's grace, they are not. And God's good providence and mercy, they sometimes come to good and right results. We've seen that and we rejoice in it. But their perverse thinking and their immoral views come through again and again in their judgments. After all, they, like all who reject Christ, to quote Ephesians, are dead in their sins. They're following the evil course of this world, even following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's where you want to go to resolve differences with your brothers? To those kind of people? I mean, does it make any sense to take disputes inside of the church, outside to judges who don't share our values? Who don't share our worldview? who don't recognize God's truth as the standard by which to live our lives and settle our differences we have with our brothers? Disputes in the church get handled in the church, friends. It's shameful to go uh, instead to the unrighteous for help in these matters. Well, if that's not enough to keep the church out of the law courts, Paul calls us to consider the fact that those inside the church are more qualified to handle disputes than those outside. Look at verse 2 there. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Let's start off with that last phrase there. Did you notice it? Trivial cases? 
I mean, you've been in a dispute with another Christian? They don't always feel trivial, do they? Sometimes they feel like the biggest thing you could ever deal with. Sometimes they feel so grave that you're not sure that this dispute will ever get resolved. How can sharp disagreements and significant conflicts be trivial? Well, talk to senior saints in the church. Talk to those who have walked with Christ for a long time. They have learned that the greatest trials when persevered in faith are smaller than they first appeared. That's for free. That's not in the text. Take advantage of those that God has given us in the church that have long experience with Christ that can testify that disagreements and disputes in the church that they thought were initially insurmountable became actually very small things indeed when they hid themselves in Christ and trusted Him to make their way through. James starts his epistle saying such trials are an occasion for joy, knowing that God works in them to bring steadfastness of faith. With that spiritual perspective, you see your situation, James says, as hard of a dispute as it might be, you see your situation as perfect and complete even as the trial continues. But back to our text. Paul's main point here is that the Corinthians and, and us, we need to lift our gaze from our relatively small differences, matters of only temporal significance, and focus on, focus on infinitely weightier matters. Look at, the, look at that verse 2 again. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, we don't get any particulars on how Christians judge the world there. He just simply references it very matter-of-factly. But Paul raises the stakes here in a huge way. He alludes to Christ's words that those who endure until the end will rule with Him, judging the world. Now, where do we find the, that kind? What, where is that alluding to? Where do we find verses that explain that sort of thing? Well, ironically, Luke 22 and verse 27 through 30 record Jesus talking about this promise in the context of a disagreement among his disciples about who's greater. Luke 22 and verse 27, listen. Christ said to his disciples, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. In the end, God's people reign with him, judging the world. Now surely Paul had this account in his mind what did the Savior teach there, though? Like, what is he trying to pull from that illusion? That those who are lowly followers of Jesus will rule as kings with him in the world to come. And Paul amps it up even further by saying Christians will also rule, they will judge angels, verse 3 tells us. 
So what's Paul saying here? He's making this greater to lesser argument. He's being very plain here. At Christ's return, the church will rule over the outcome of all those who are in the world and even over angels. And if that's the case, if the church is equipped for that, if they're competent in their faith to judge the world in the end, even angels, surely, surely we can judge trivial matters, little temporal disputes between us here inside the church. You see that argument? Really? It's not, it's not your local judge that's going to be competent to rule with Jesus in the end and judge the affairs of men. It's the church. And if the church is competent to do that, they're certainly competent to handle these trivial matters. Let's say your sister was an accomplished musician. She taught at the famous Juilliard School and was a sought-after judge at musical competitions at the highest level. And let's further assume that you had a couple of kids and they both played the piano. And an argument arose in your family as to who played it best. Would you ask your sister for her expert advice to settle the matter between the two brothers or the brother and sister? Or would you march down to the local school and ask the music teacher to decide this ridiculous argument that you have inside your family? With the church, we are all destined to judge matters of eternal consequence. To act like there is no one wise enough to settle disputes among ourselves is shameful. Especially in light of the fact that we have been adopted together into the family of God through Christ. The unity of the faith. This is essentially what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. So I just say, what about you? I mean, maybe you can just chuck this text and say, well, I don't intend on suing my friend in the church, so what does this have to do with me? But just ask yourself, is there anything so important that you might? Is there anything so important that you would bring shame on the church by going to court to resolve a matter with another brother or sister? Happens all the time, friends. I was just having a conversation a couple of weeks ago about somebody contemplating it. What if you went to someone in the church for resolution, but you weren't satisfied with the decision? Would you contemplate court then? Be careful, friends. Pride comes before the fall. So let's hear the weight of these arguments and... And let's try to ask the Spirit to transform our minds to think in these ways. Okay, so you've had a couple of, of, of arguments now. The, the, finally, Paul calls out the Corinthians for even getting to the point that a court case would be necessary. Listen, you've lost already if you're at the point of filing, right? Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? What's he saying? To insist on your way. To demand it. To put your interests above another's without yielding to require that you are right and others are wrong and nothing else will satisfy you. 
This is not Christian behavior, but it is the kind of behavior, it is the kind of thinking that leads to filing a lawsuit. It's giving up spiritual territory. It's pulling yourself and others off the mission for these rather trivial matters. I mean, the church of Jesus Christ has bigger fish to fry than chasing down lawsuits against other Christians. What's more, doing so separates you from Christ. Did you hear me? Filing a lawsuit against another Christian separates you from Christ. The Lord willingly was defrauded, was he not? When he came into this world, he knew what the score was. He knew it was in front of him, and he knew he was going to be defrauded, and he did it willingly. He subjected himself to that. Though he knew no sin, he gladly subjected himself to be judged as though he was sin incarnate. He did this for the eternal good of others, and because he knew that, in the end, the Father would make everything right. And those who claim to be Christ's, people with the Spirit, are to do likewise. To go against that is to separate yourself from Christ. But to be willing to be wronged for the good of the body, for the glory of Christ, oh, friends, that's commendable. Uh, Peter even says as much in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a matter for the courts. No, that's not what Peter writes. Come on, friends. You know 1 Peter 2. Pay attention here. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, you enter into binding arbitration. That's not what it says, is it? If, you, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter continues, for to, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Don't separate yourself from Christ and, and, and haul a brother or sister into the courts, friends. To witness of Christ is to be willing to suffer wrong at times, to be humiliated even, to be unjustly treated even when you're in the right. And taking brothers to court flies in the face of this pattern that our Savior laid down for us to our eternal good. Disputes in the church get handled in the church. Think it with me now. Disputes in the church get handled right here in the church. If we think it's okay to go to the unrighteous to judge between us, if we deny that the church is qualified to handle our trivial matters when they will judge the world, if we refuse to be wrong because our name is more important than Christ, it is to our shame. To go to the world's court to handle Disputes in the church, it's worthy of rebuke. And so Paul issues this first one. It's worthy of rebuke to sue another brother or sister in court, but it, it, it so too is taking up the world's tactics. 
The first rebuke was for bringing other Christians to the world's court, and now we turn to the second rebuke for the Corinthians taking up the world's tactics. That's in verses 8 through 11. Look at verse 8, first of all. You wrong and defraud even your own brothers. You wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Again, this is a convenient place to check out, right? Because you're thinking to yourself, like, I'm not going to wrong my brother. I have no intention on defrauding my friend, right? Listen up, friends. Listen up. Check in here. The courts that ruled Corinth were infamous for their corruption and partiality toward those in the higher classes. They were known for it. It may be that those in the church with more status in society were using the courts to their advantage. That may be what Paul was referring to, but whatever the case, we're not sure. Whatever the case, brothers had been willing to lie and cheat, cheat and perhaps offer bribes. They had been willing to win at any cost. You realize that same kind of behavior happens in our courts, right? That's, that's not some anomaly in history. It's easy enough when you enter the world stage not to use the world's tactics. The first chapter of Proverbs warns of the wicked influence of the world on, those that, uh, on the righteous. Listen to it now, Proverbs 1, verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent. My son, do not walk in the way with them, hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil. Did you hear the logic there? Don't go on their path, because when you're on their path, then you're going to be tempted to engage in the way that they live. So I make that same analogy or rather Paul does here, that if you're going to swim in the pool of the law courts, suing your brother and sister, be careful, that's the place where people lie and cheat and steal and make up evidence and bribe judges in order to get their way. Be careful you don't start to behave that way. When you want more than anything to be vindicated, that's why people go to court. In my early days of my law practice, the, the, worst kind of, the, the worst kind of client was the one that came in and said, I want to sue this person. It's not about the money. It's about the principle. And I'm like, I don't want this case. Because this person, all they care about is being right. And it's going to be ugly. And they're going to do whatever it takes. More often than not, that, that was the case. When you want more than anything to be vindicated, to win at the expense of even your brother, you've lost already. So be careful, friends. That's the kind of thinking, that's the kind of tactics that, that are often found in the law courts. You've lost because it is in the world's venues that you use the world's maneuvers. You can begin to follow the way unbelievers try to win court cases if you yourself are in one. Often, often people that are trying to win court cases employ wicked scheme, schemes to gain the upper hand. 
Notice that in the list of sins given in verses 9 and 10, it includes theft and greed, among others. If chapter 5 taught us anything, it taught us that we're capable of terrible sins. Remember one of the points, one of the arguments in the last sermon was, wake up! Wake up to what? Wake up to the fact that we in the church can do terrible things. So when you hear a rebuke like this, you hear a warning like this, dial in. Pay attention. Don't chuck it. Don't say, I'm glad Dolores is here so she can listen to this, but I don't need it. We do that kind of move all the time, don't we, in the church? Don't do that. Dial in. Take this warning for yourself, for your soul's protection. Pretend you're the son that the, that the father in Proverbs 1 is talking to and receive that wisdom. Don't be deceived into thinking you can navigate a courtroom fighting against a Christian brother or sister without facing the temptation to adopt the evil behaviors normally employed there. Disputes in the church get handled in the church. And when they do, cheating and lying are not tolerated. Arrogance and mean-spirited attacks are not tolerated. But in secular courtrooms, they're commonplace. Don't be tempted to adopt such tactics by going to court against your brother. That's Paul's point. Such temptation isn't worth it. Enduring that kind of temptation isn't worth whatever it is you're seeking. It's not worthy of the name of Christ. It's not worthy of those who have been freed from sin's slavery through Christ's victory. It's not, it's not worthy of the people of God. It's not worthy of people that claim to be spiritual people. It's in fact shameful. It harms the witness of the church Would you sacrifice the glory of the Savior for the world's commendation? Would you sacrifice Christ's judgment for that of a local magistrate? For an ungodly judge saying, you're right, you win. Is that worthy of it? Damaging the reputation of the church? Tarnishing the glory of Christ? Is that worth it? Well, Paul ends this section by providing two additional reasons to flee the evil tactics of the law court. The evil tactics to the, of the way the world resolves differences. The first is a warning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Again, you know what we do when we hear a warning, Christians? You know what you do, don't you? When you hear a warning like that, be careful. The unrighteous won't get to heaven. What do you do when you hear a warning like that? You go, hey, once saved, always saved, baby. I prayed a prayer. I've been a member of the, I'm baptized. You know me, I'm a deacon. What are you talking about? I'm not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. Why do we see in the Bible again and again and again warnings that say, think about your behavior, the people that act like that don't go to heaven? Why are those kinds of warnings issued? Well, there's two different ways they're employed. One is to say, like, make sure you're in the faith. Because people in the faith don't look like this. They look like fruits of the Spirit. They don't look like fruits of the flesh. That's one way they're employed. But this one, I think, uses the other it's being used in this other way. 
It's to cause believers to consider the outcome of that way of life. It, it, it's, it, it's, to, it's to say it like this. If you continue to live like that, right, you're essentially picking that over the Savior. And you know what happens to people like that, don't you? They get rewarded with eternal punishment. Think about that. You abandon Christ, that's going to be your reward. That warning is so terrifying to a Christian, it motivates us to, re to repent of that behavior and fall back in line. Be so thankful that we're, that's not our end. So hear the weight of that rebuke. Hear the weight of that warning, friends. That's a long list of sins there. Are you struggling with any of them? Then consider, if you abandon Christ and you give yourself to that way of living, consider what the end of that kind of living is and flee back to Christ. That's the purpose of, of that warning. He says in verse 9 there, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about this truth, about this warning. It is designed to cause you to wake up to your evil and consider what your eternity will look like apart from Christ. It is a powerful motivator to repent. To remember you don't want to share the fate of those who embrace this evil world. One more reason. One more reason not to adopt the, the worldly tactics of the, of the law court. Look at verse 11 there. Such were some of you. What does he mean? What's the such referring to? Well, that's 9 and 10. That long list of, of sins there, the revilers and the homosexuals and, and the thieves and the swindlers and the greedy. And, and, and Paul says, that was you guys. You remember that? Such were some of you. Were. You used to be like that. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, remember what happened to you. Remember who you are in Jesus. Paul reminded them that God, God took people that looked like that sinner list there. Took people like that who lied and bullied and manipulated and offered bribes and worse. He took people that used to look like that and changed them, freed them from that sin. He reminded him here that they had been washed. They had been purified from those former sins. Those former sins no longer had that stain on them. They had been washed in the blood of the Lamb through their faith in Christ. They'd been saved by God in Christ. No longer did they have to live like the world and employ its evil ways. The Spirit had awakened their soul to faith in Christ. And because of that great and merciful event, they had been cleansed of those sins, declared holy by God, and declared innocent in the courtroom of God. Don't run to worldly courts these small little insignificant courts that will not survive the fires of God's judgment. Don't go there for your little trivial matters. Friends, you have been made right with God in His court, the court of heaven. It, 
it causes you to lift your gaze, doesn't it? It causes you to put those things that seemed very, very important, very, very dire, those disputes that were so heavy, it puts them in proper perspective, doesn't it? They're very trivial matters. Well, when we remember the warning that loving evil more than God and His church keeps people from the kingdom of heaven, and when we remember the eternal change God brought about in our souls when He, when he brought us into the faith, the Spirit of Christ gives us power to not live like the Corinthians were living here, to not live like the ways in which we often live. It, To remember these things, that warning and also that great delight of what God has done in us in Christ, the Spirit gives us power to give up our obsessive desire to be right. That sinful desire to be vindicated at the expense of other people. And this is especially true as we seek to resolve problems we have with those inside the church, our brothers and our sisters. Yes, disputes in the church get handled in the church. Turning to the world's courts and taking up the world's tactics are not worthy of God's people. We can trust in the wisdom of the church. We can be empowered by what Christ has changed, be empowered by what Christ has done in changing us. And so may we we live as spirit-filled people, friends, as you consider these things. May we live as spirit-filled people, as, as people that are His, that because of Him, He has gathered together so that we might live together and work out our differences together as we witness of Him to the world, as we handle all of these things inside the church as we ought. Take a moment of quiet reflection over these things. Perhaps something has stirred your heart, has caused you to see something dark in you that you need to turn from. Embrace the word today, friends. Take a moment of quiet reflection over it.